Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sarah Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sarah Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sarah Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today is the second part of my interview with Sam Vaknin. Tell me if I'm right or wrong here. Is that you're not born with, you're not born a narcissist. That's something that happens due to a trauma in childhood. Probably there is some genetic propensity to become a narcissist. Because we see, for example, multiple siblings in the same family with the same upbringing, same abuse, even even identical twins. One becomes a narcissist, the other doesn't. So there must be some genetic template or genetic propensity, which we have no clue about hitherto. But then it's the environment that shapes, that that triggers these genes, that, that somehow shapes the narcissist. And yes, narcissism is the outcome of abuse and trauma in early childhood. I would just like to clarify what I mean when by saying abuse and trauma. Abuse and trauma doesn't only, is not, is not limited only to physical abuse or sexual abuse or verbal abuse or psychological abuse. These are the classical forms. Abuse and trauma can be, for example, a mother who uses the child to realize her unfulfilled dreams and wishes. That is called instrumentalization. Abuse would be to let the child parent the parent when the child is forced to fulfill parental roles and functions. That's abuse. It's called parentifying. Abuse would be to smother the child, spoil the child, pamper the child, and so prevent the child from having any access to reality, isolating the child, in effect, from reality. That's abuse. Abuse would be to tell the child, you're perfect, you never make mistakes, you're godlike. That's abuse, pedestalizing the child. That's abuse. Abuse is any situation where the child is not allowed to separate from the parent, is not allowed to interact with reality, and is not allowed to develop boundaries, period. So a multiplicity of behaviors qualify as abuse. It doesn't have to be the classic blood drawing or you know, incest prone parent. It could be a parent who on the face of it is a great parent, a loving parent, a caring parent, but actually it's a parent who is emotionally blackmailing the child, is not allowing the child to separate, is self-sacrificial ostentatiously, is, is uh, terrifying the child by, by rendering the child insecure, a parent who is overprotective, of the child. All these are forms of abuse. Some of it egregious. Yeah. And all of them create lead, lead to a, so children, when they experience abuse and trauma, they have two solutions effectively. No, they have three actually, but two major ones. Solution number one, I'm going to become my abuser. That's solution number one. That's narcissism. Solution number two, I'm going to please my abuser. I'm going to appease my abuser. That's the codependent and the people pleaser. Solution number three is I'm going to try to become the abuser 
And if I fail, I'm going to fall apart. That's the borderline. Okay, that's interesting. What what about kids that that understand what's going on because they have a stable parent and say, I can recognise that that's not normal. I suppose in kids speak, that's not normal because other people around me, maybe the other healthy parent, um, you know, that's this happens a lot with divorce. They separate. The child then has, you know, the the healthy parent that isn't living with the narcissist. So they get to see what is normal and they say, I can see that isn't right. I don't want to be like that. So what about kids that fall into that camp? Yeah, you just stepped into a um, minefield in psychology. There, there are huge debates which have been ongoing since 1951. There is a school of Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth and others that say that the only important figure, only crucial figure is the mother. So if the mother happens to be what is called a dead mother, there was a psychoanalyst, Andre Green, and he coined the phrase dead mother. Dead mother doesn't mean physically dead. It means absent, depressed, selfish, um, et cetera, et cetera, a, a bad mother. So because only the mother matters, if the mother is a narcissist or a psychopath or a depressive or whatever, the child is doomed. <laughs> Never mind if the other parent is a good parent and so on. That's the approach of Bowlby and the attachment schools. But there is great opposition in psychology to this approach. By the way, I adhere to this approach. Still, I will represent the other side. So there's a great debate, for example, Bandura and others, and they say, and, and they say no. A child is capable of attaching to, multi, to multiple attachment figures. So if the father, for example, balances out the mother by presenting a healthy alternative, a normal alternative, that will have an effect on the child. If a grandmother, if a grandfather, if a, a helpful neighbor who is const, a constant presence in the child's life, they can balance out the mother. So there is a big debate about this. The, 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 the main process is known as modeling. If, if your child is living with a parent, for example, if you had divorced someone and you had a child with them and they are narcissists or psychopaths and they have custody and you have no custody, what to do? The answer is called modeling. You have to show the child an alternative, a model, that the child will be able to select and emulate late, later in life. But you have to be very patient and you have to endure a lot of pain because children gravitate naturally towards dysfunctional parents. Children have a preference for dysfunctional parents because dysfunctional parents are fun. The narcissistic parent bribes the child with trips and toys and money and freedom and no rules and so on. So the child prefers the narcissistic parent usually. But if you present to the child a consistent model of alternative normal and healthy behavior over the life, over the, the childhood and adolescence period, when the child reaches 16 to 18, the child actually in the vast majority of cases is likely to choose you over the less healthy parent but you have to endure 10 years of alienation 
10 years of heartbreak, 10 years of neglect and abandonment by your children, 10 years maybe of not seeing the children or seeing them very rarely. It's, it's heart-wrenching, but it you have to endure. It is, it is. That's really interesting, actually. I mean, I, I, I've seen from working with people who are divorcing narcissists and toxic people that, that you know, if they provide that stability and that consistent love, there are times, and, and I, you know, it's tough, isn't it? Because when when you're going through a divorce or a breakup, which obviously is, is my area of, of specialism, that, that when you're going through that, you're under immense pressure. And then with someone that's toxic, the games that are played out mean that you're not going through that divorce process in the same way that people who underlying, they want a fair resolution for both at the end of the day. They might argue over who gets the piano and, and how much time the kids spend with who. But ultimately, it's going to be some sort of fair resolution. But with with a toxic person, the, the solution is they want annihilation. They want you done, out. Right? If they can cause more pain, then, you know, the, then that's great for them. So what we find is it's very hard to come to any agreements. It's very hard to negotiate with somebody like that because once you put your cards on the table, they then know what you want. When they know what you want, they're not going to give it to you. So, Sam, for people listening who are going, that's me, I know that's exactly where I am. How do you sort of negotiate with somebody like this? Is it possible? How, I mean, these people are forced into this. They have to. So either they, they walk away with less, which is quite often the case because they can't deal with the emotional roller coaster and the financial, probably annihilation just because of the legal costs, you know, or, or do they fight for what is legally theirs? But, you know, the, the damage financially and emotionally is, is huge either way. What, 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 how do they approach this? Because they're forced into it. They can't avoid it. The first bit of advice is do not demonize and do not mythologize your abuser or the toxic, the toxic partner. When you demonize or mythologize your toxic partner, you're empowering them. You're giving them power over you. Because who can face a demon successfully and who can cope with a mythical creature? You're doomed. That's it. It's like surrendering in advance. Your toxic partner is actually a lesser person than you are because he lacks access to his emotions. He has cognitive distortions. He's a sick person. So it's a lesser person, not a superior person, a vastly inferior person. You have resources that your toxic partner could only dream of and rarely does. So this is point number one. Point number two, your toxic partner is acting the way he does in the majority of cases, not in all cases, but in the majority of cases because he can't help it. This is very important to understand. It's a compulsion. If, if your toxic partner is a psychopath, then he is out to get you and demolish you because you have challenged him. It's a power play. It's a power play and it's a mind game, which psychopaths cherish. It's a form of entertainment. It gives their life meaning and sense and direction and goals. If you're unlucky enough to have teamed up with a psychopath, then you're effed. But, but psychopaths are... Agreeing with that right now, but, yeah, but, but psychopaths are extremely rare, much more rare than we are led to believe. 
They're exceedingly rare. And by the way, because they're goal-oriented, if, they, if you give them what they want, you never see them again. That's the good thing about psychopaths. Gratify them and they're gone. They're not like narcissists. Narcissists hoover and they haunt you and they stalk you like forever. A psychopath wants your money. Give him your money, you'll never see him again. He wants your house. Give him your house, you'll never see him again. Psychopaths are easy to gratify. The problem is that most toxic partners have other mental health disorders or have a personality which is clinically healthy, but they have quirks which drive them compulsively to engage in underhanded tactics and so on. So this is the second piece of advice. Realize that your toxic partner is helpless, is unable to curb his impulses and his need to prevail and, and all this. Point number three, uh, prioritize. What are your priorities? One of the major things that come, one of the major problems that come across, people don't have clear priorities. For example, do you value your money more than you value your children? Do you value your common house, common property, communal property, more than you value your dog? <laughs> do you value your dog more than you value your books? I mean, get it straight. Make a bloody list. Decide, decide what you're willing to give up on and what is a red line in the sand and sine qua non and you will fight to, to, the, to the death. I mean, prioritize, 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 make your life much simpler. And then those priorities which are low, give them up. Allocate your energy wisely. Defend and protect your top, your three top priorities, not the, not the other 34. These other 34, sacrifice them exactly like in chess, sacrifice the pawns. It may even gratify your toxic partner. He may misperceive a triumph where there's none because you've given up on 34 points out of 37. And he says, you see, I triumph, I'm victorious. That's the next one. And the last point I want to make is, you have never been real to your toxic partner. You have either been a function or a set of functions. You have been an internal object. You've been a trophy. You've been a symbol. You've been everything but real. This is something victims of abuse cannot wrap their, head, their heads around. Victims of abuse are commodities. They have never been special. They have never been unique. They have never been chosen. They are commodities like so many grains of rice. The, the victim of abuse is easily dispensable, interchangeable, and fungible. That's why the toxic partner moves on to the next partner within a day, sometimes hours. So get rid of this grandiose perception or thought that you have ever meant anything to your toxic abuser. You never did. You were an excuse. You were a trigger. You were an ornament. 
you're a decoration, you're an object useful at times. That's all you were. If you overvalue your place in your toxic partner's life, you're going to make some seriously bad decisions. If you obtain a realistic perspective on who you are and how much you don't matter, then you're likely to make much better decisions. You've never been a significant other. You've always been an insignificant other. I mean, I, wow, that's, that's, I mean, fascinating and, and rings true. And I know that's going to ring true a lot of people listening. I know right now it's probably a lot of people who are quite upset listening to that because it shakes what they're holding on to, at least, because they're looking back thinking, well, I can't have lived a lie. And I, I, it doesn't make sense. And how is this possible? And how could anyone do this to me? And that what I call hamster wheel of questions starts going. So don't worry if you're listening to this. There is help and support, which you can get from me and my coaches and the free workshops we run and everything like that. But through my experience with working with clients going through this and my own experience is that it's hard to accrue brownie points. Like if you give something, they just take it. There's, there doesn't seem to be a stacking. Well, I did all this, remember, last week. And therefore, you know, when you're negotiating the divorce, they just take everything as a win rather than that compromise. So, so that's that's one point. And. And if we meant so little to them, Sam, why don't they leave us alone when they've moved on? I saw in one of your articles, I think I was reading, you talked about body snatchers. And it's kind of like, just leave me alone. Like, we've <clears throat> moved on. Why? Why? We've separated our lives. We've got maybe you've got the agreements in place. Why is it still so important for you to throw these little grenades into my life every every few weeks, every few days? You know, or when things seem to be going OK for a period of time? it's coming you know you can't fully relax you know that there's always that sort of volcano that is going to erupt at some point why if we were so insignificant to them you were insignificant to them but the internal object that represents you in the, in the narcissist's mind is anything but insignificant it's very significant it's called an introject which has a critical, a series of critical psychological functions. When you are gone as an external object, when the narcissist devalues and discards you, he remains stuck with your representation in his mind. And he, he continues a dialogue with this representation. He argues with it and so on. By the way, an identical process happens to you. The narcissist introject remains in your mind. And you continue to argue with the narcissist and listen to the narcissist. And so there's the voice of the narcissist is embedded in your mind through a process called entraining. It's embedded in your mind. And you are embedded in the narcissist's mind. Remember, your relationship with the narcissist has been a fantasy from day one. It's never been real. None of it was real. You've been living a dream which had turned into a nightmare. None of it was real. You have become an avatar, an icon in the narcissist's mind, and he has become one in yours. You're both continuing to engage in a dialogue, only separately. It's difficult to extricate the narcissist from, to expurgate the narcissist from your mind. Exceedingly difficult. Similarly, the narcissist can't get rid of you. Never mind how hard he tries. Your internal object, your representation in his mind keeps challenging him, keeps reminding him of his failure, 
keeps informing him that he's less than omnipotent and less than omni, omni, omniscient and less, less than godlike. He needs, he needs you to return. He needs to couple you again with the internal object and this time obtain conformity. Now, this is a replay of his original relationship with his mother. The original relationship with his parental figures was exactly about this. He couldn't separate from them. They didn't allow him to separate. He can't separate from you. He can't separate from you because you're inside his mind and he can't get, get rid of you. The only way is to bring you back. Hence the process of hovering. It's the only way. When he devalues you in real life and discards you, he does not devalue the internal object. He tries, he fails. He doesn't devalue the internal object. So in his mind, there's an idealized version of you. Indeed, when he hoovers you, he re-idealizes you. Again, you're the most amazing, intelligent, beautiful woman in the world when he hoovers you second time. Because, not because he really believes this, but because he needs you to conform to the internal object, which is idealized. And so, so the narcissist has two options. Either he destroys you, annihilates you, vitiates you, utterly renders you molecular, <laughs> dissolves you, so that you no longer challenge his, the internal object, or he takes you back and forces you, coerces you to conform to the internal object. This is hovering. So either he becomes an antagonist, an enemy for life, and so on, or he becomes, or he tries to hover you all the time, a stalker. So, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, and I see this all the time, and, and, and you know, a lot of the time they are successful in completely sort of destroying people's lives that they leave behind. Um, so they are not, you know, the same person. For, for those people listening who are strong enough and have that core and have a support around them to, to keep going, does, do, does then it work to maintain a di totally disingenuous, obviously, relationship with them where they believe that you are friendly or you, you, you get on with them and you, you keep that contact so that it, it's not personal, you're not sharing personal details, you're not getting into any personal information but obviously asking them about themselves is a good way to get a conversation going and talking about them. But you, you can appear what I call functionally friendly, but actually you're still keeping everything private. Is that, is that a way that is sustainable, do you think? No, it's a seriously better. It's, it's a seriously better. The only viable strategy with the narcissist is to set extremely firm boundaries and to go no contact. He, to this yes, very day, uh, well, some people, some people are limited because they have children, for example, and so on. Still, they can communicate via lawyers and accountants. There, of course, you no contact to the maximum of your ability, obviously. But even when one has common children, one can still communicate via lawyers and so on. Definitely not respond to any queries, not receive, not accept gifts, uh, disengage on social media, 
by blocking and banning. No contact is no contact. There's no variance of no contact. No contact simply means no contact. That's the only viable strategy. There are, not, there are nine, I invented eight. Another guy invented gray rock. All, all other strategies suck, honestly. The, the thing is this, your very presence triggers the narcissist. Your very presence. It's not what you say. It's that, it's that you say. It's, it's your photograph. It's something he reads on social media. He stalks you through social media. It's, it's um, 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 communication, however innocuous and impersonal. It's a reminder that you exist. You're the one who got away. You're the one who challenged him. You're the one who undermined his grandiosity. You're the one who threatened the delicate, precarious balance of his internal world by trying somehow to transform an internal object which represented you. You're the one who betrayed him. You're the one who exited the fantasy. You're the one who forced him to confront reality at some point. You're the one who took away his most prized possessions as far as he's concerned. You are, you are a trigger. It's exactly like asking, and I'm sorry for the crass comparison, but it's exactly like asking a Holocaust survivor, do you think you can maintain a civil, impersonal relationship with the SS commandant of your concentration camp. Hi, it's Sarah Davison here, the Divorce Coach. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. I just wanted to let you know about a free gift I've got for you, which I know will help you if you're struggling with your breakup or divorce right now. I'd like to offer you a free week's membership of my Heartbreak to Happiness online support group sessions with unlimited access to any of the groups during this time. So what are they? Well, these are friendly and confidential online support groups run by my accredited coaches. I've designed them to ensure that you know you're not alone and there is help and support out there to help you cope better. One delegate, Jane, said after her first session, I can't believe how much better I feel in just one hour. Another delegate, Wendy, said, my friends and family are so fed up of hearing me talk about this. And now I finally feel like I've found my tribe. I've designed these sessions so you'll meet other people going through similar situations and you'll be able to share your story in a safe space. My specialist coaches are all trained personally by me and are there to offer support and help to enable you to dial down those negative emotions and let go of your ex. So I wanted to make a special offer to all my podcast listeners, which is a free week's access to this unique support. It means that you will have access to as many support sessions as you would like to attend in a week. And we've got lots of days and different times to choose from. This is a great way to start to take your power back and help you feel more empowered. Remember, as I always say, it's not what happens to you that defines you. It's what you do about it that makes you the person you are. So sign up now at www.sarahdavison.com forward slash 
support group. That's saradavison.com forward slash support group to claim your free gift and to move from your heartbreak to happiness. Well, theoretically, it's possible if both of them know German. But I wouldn't advise. I would advise against it, wouldn't you? Mm. Should a Holocaust survivor maintain a civil discourse with the commandant of his, of his extermination camp? I doubt that any psychologist would endorse this kind of... Uh, oh, well, I mean, that opens up a whole thing for me because there's so many so-called experts, Sam, that will encourage victims of abuse to have a relationship with the other parent, the abusive parent, because they say otherwise you're being a bad parent and you are not supporting your child and you are alienating and all these false allegations. I mean, that that's one of the biggest issues we face in family courts is, is well, some regulated, a lot of unregulated. The other person, allow me to, to interject. The other person is not a parent. That's a mistake of these so-called experts or self-styled experts. Everyone in his dog is an expert nowadays. Yeah? The, the other person is not a parent. The narcissist is incapable of discerning or interacting with external objects, his children included. He has no access to reality and no access to anyone in reality and no access to his own emotions. He's incapable of loving. He's incapable of caring. He has no empathy. How on earth would he interact with children properly? He is not a parent by any extension of the word. I'm not aware of any lexical definition of the word parent which would fit a narcissist. He is a sperm donor or a gamete, an egg donor. He has donated 50% of genetic material. That does not make him a parent or her a parent. Although they will believe they are phenomenal parents. Narcissists are incapable of the three most critical elements in parenting, love, empathy, modeling behavior. These are the three pillars of parenting. And narcissists are incapable of all three combined. They cannot act as, as parents, no more than they can act as intimate partners or lovers or reliable business partners, etc. They are not embedded in reality. They are fantasy creatures. Otto Kernberg and many other very preeminent scholars, my humble self included, believe that narcissists are actually almost psychotic. Psychosis, to remind people, schizophrenics are psychotic. Paranoid schizophrenics are psychotic. Psychosis is the cancer of mental health. And many of us believe that narcissists are, you know, one inch removed from psychosis. They're so sick that they totally confuse external reality with internal reality. Children, as far as they're concerned, are extensions. I don't know, objects, avatars. They're not real. The children are not real. They're real only in in as much as they provide narcissistic supply, or they are real only in as much as they allow them to leverage the children in order to score points with the estranged partner or whatever. 
they're real as functions and they're real as objects, but they're not real as children. They're definitely not separate from the narcissist. I would absolutely ban all access to children of anyone to anyone diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And I mean no visitation rights, zero exposure, not one minute exposure. Narcissists are very, 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 very sick people. Do you want a child to be with a sick person like this? You don't. They're even more sick than psychopaths, by the way. Much more sick than psychopaths. I mean, a lot of people listening to this will be probably very moved. I feel moved from listening to this because, unfortunately, in this, in the UK, there is a presumption of contact. Like there is, you know, that that is how the court system is based. And there's a lack of any understanding for most legal professionals. There's no compulsory training exam for any legal professional in the UK on any of these. I mean, domestic abuse in its widest form, let alone this kind of information. And yet most of the people that I see in my coaching clinic and that I campaign for behind the scenes are dealing with these kind of personality disorders. Um, undiagnosed, obviously, most of the time because they won't go and get the diagnosis or they're being misdiagnosed. And it's the victim of abuse that is being diagnosed as the one who's bitter and twisted and alienating. And, you know, there's a whole sort of it's almost the opposite plays out so that, you know, children are being taken from the victims who are saying that the child doesn't want to see the parent. I don't really understand what's going on, but it has been abusive when I was in that relationship. And the children are being forcibly removed and given to the perpetrator in these cases just because there's, well, the experts and the system is either corrupt or, you know, lack of education, whatever you want to say on that. I and mean, we've got very strong opinions on it. But the but, you know, it, it's failing people because this information is just not widely accepted or, or known, Sam. Yes, well, there's the classical works by Lundy Bancroft on, uh, on battered women at the time. You see, I don't think it's a question of ignorance as much as it is a question of denial. Yeah. The court system is part of the establishment normally. Should be, by the way, should protect the status quo, basically. It should protect rights to privacy and rights to you know, human rights and so on. And there is this presumption that um, unless you're a knife-wielding, you know, <laughs> maniac, everything else is acceptable in parenting. You know, men's home is his castle and all this uh, Anglo-Saxon bullshit. It's Anglo-Saxon, by the way. You don't have this um, you don't have this legal doctrine in many other countries. But in other countries, you have different, different issues. For example, patriarchy or patriarchal thing. In Russia, domestic violence has been decriminalized a few years ago. Yeah. So it's a patriarchal country where men rule. It's a throwback to the, I don't know, 16th century, I think, or something. So... Um, in Afghanistan, of course, in, I mean, Mongolia, believe it or not, and so on. So you have, you have societies where there's men rule, patriarchal societies, and so we, we, we don't talk about narcissism and so on and so forth, because you know, most narcissists, most diagnosed narcissists at least are men, used to be men, now it's 50-50. And um, there's another group of societies, I, call, I, I say the Anglo-Saxon societies, 
the Anglo-Saxon legal tradition, where the law stops at the threshold, the law stops at your door. The law has no right to intervene in domestic affairs. You should settle it between, unless there's violence involved, overt violence, you know, with knives and guns and bazookas and I don't know what else. All the rest should be settled between the involved parties. Amazing behaviors, I mean, totally criminal behaviors, like assault, like rape, have been utterly legal until recently, when two intimate partners were involved. So, you know, your husband could, could rape you legally until the 1970s. It was okay. Even if you said no, 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 repeatedly, it's, it was still legal. So there is this, and there's another presumption, which is counterfactual, idiotic, honestly, is that parenting comes automatically. You don't need to train. You don't need to learn anything. You don't need, it, it's an automatic instinctive or instinctual drive. Like everyone can be a parent. If you have the right genitalia, you're equipped to be a parent, which is of course, you know, we certify everything. You need a license to drive a scooter. You need a license to drive a minivan. You need a license to shoot a gun. You need a license to hunt foxes. You don't need a license to do two things, which are the most important in human life. You don't need a license to vote and you don't need a license to raise children. These are the two things you don't need a license for, which I think should be the only two things to be licensed. And yet this is the case. So the legal system is not as much ignorant as reluctant, simply reluctant. It's an enclave which has been off limits for so many centuries. It's difficult to transform this state of mind. It is, and, it, and it's causing a lot of trauma. In fact, there was some research done recently by a charity that found out that I think it was 82% of people going through the family courts having suffered trauma from a toxic relationship were re-traumatized by the family court system not their expert Absolutely. i mean obviously that plays out in there too but Absolutely. i mean and, and you know i see this every day people saying I, I feel like i'm going into the court and and i'm the only sane person in that because everyone sees it completely differently like i'm putting the evidence across and the facts and saying what i believe and they're saying yeah but you're the problem and this is coming from psychologists and conversant commas and you know the experts that they and there's a in. there's a disconnect. For example, lower courts in, in in the United Kingdom have accepted narcissistic personality disorder as a mitigating circumstance. In other words, um, not guilty by reason of insanity. In the Blackwell case, for example, was accepted as a defense. So criminal courts realize and accept narcissism as such a severe mental illness that it reduces criminal liability. And yet family courts don't. So there's a disconnect between various branches of the judiciary. Yeah, I mean, it's gosh. I mean, so I could talk to you for hours and hours. I'd love to talk to you more on this topic. And I, I, I'm so grateful for your time today. I have one last question for you. I, 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 my podcast is called Heartbreaks to Happiness, and I usually ask my guests, you know, what what makes you happy. But I'm really interested. Is it are they happy? Are these are narcissists happy? Can they be happy? Because when they treat people so unkindly, 
and cruelly in, in a lot of cases. Are they happy? Can they experience that level of happiness? I think they are euphoric. Euphoric and, and with an elevated mood, which doesn't last for long, by the way. Because narcissists need constant injections of narcissistic supply. They're drug addicts. They're junkies. They're addicted to supply. But as long as the supply is, you know, flowing smoothly and regularly, narcissists are euphoric and elated, especially when they score points, when they're triumphant and victorious, when they prevail, when they prove themselves to themselves, at least, <laughs> fantastically, when they inhabit a fantasy which is not challenged by anyone, either because people are afraid to challenge a narcissist or because they also subscribe to the fantasy. Cults, cults are perfect examples. So in all these situations, narcissists are what we call egosyntonic. Egosyntonic means you feel comfortable in your own skin and you're relatively happy-go-lucky. You know? uh, some narcissists um, are happy when they possess things. For example, I'm extremely happy when I buy new books. I'm, I'm absolutely euphoric. Some narcissists are happy when they possess people. So somatic narcissists are happy when, with sexual conquests, new sexual conquests. Some narcissists are happy when they prevail. Donald Trump, for example, is euphoric, visibly euphoric, when he triumphs over his adversaries. He's paranoids are actually narcissists because the paranoid likes to believe himself to be the center of malign attention by various institutions and conspiracies and what have you. It's a form of narcissism. So yes, Narcissists, I would say, um, and counterintuitively, have many more opportunities to feel euphoric, elevated, and should, dare I say happy, than normal people, healthy people, because they live in fantasy. It's crucial to understand. It's much easier to be happy in a fantasy than it is in reality. Reality pushes back, it frustrates, it's, it challenges. It's harsh and nasty and brutish and short life. Narcissists reject reality at a very early stage in life. When they're children, they reject reality. They invent an imaginary friend, which later becomes the false self, and a paracosm, an alternative virtual reality, which they inhabit. That's the fantasy world. And they're delirious in this fantasy world, but they're not with us. They're not here. Narcissists are not here. Even when they are granting an interview, they are not here. They are inside <laughs> their heads. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So if people want to find out more about you, where where can they go to find well, out? Well, Google Sam Vaknin, YouTube Sam Vaknin, you know, whatever. <laughs> There's like hundreds of thousands. There's a lot of, of places. I know. Yeah. I've spent the last 24 hours immersed in your content. There's oh my god! My, my my apologies and my condolences. <laughs> Fascinating. Thank you, Sam. You Thank are. You. You've been you know so enlightening, and I really appreciate you. you taking time out of your your day. Thank today. you. A pleasure to talk to you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Okay. Um, that's it for today's episode. I hope you guys are okay. I know that some of what Sam said may have resonated very strongly with you. And so if you do need extra support, do reach out. We are running a free trial for our online support groups right now, Heartbreaks Happiness. So check those out and do join me on my next episode. Move forward, feeling stronger and more confident. And I really look forward to you joining me on my next episode.
That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness.